Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas the mainstream media wants. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. It's the leading Look. source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, <coughs> you're here this morning with Jacob and um, Lali, who is not currently in the studio yet, um, but she will be soon. In terms of um, headline news, um, I guess I'll start with Acknowledgement of Country. Um, I'd like to... Green Left Week Radio is being broadcast to you from 3CR Studios in Smith Street, um, Collingwood, which is built on the traditional lands of the one. Wanagiri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, sovereignty was never ceded, and as with the many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I guess we can talk um, in term about some headline news um, that's sort of off the press. Um, many have probably heard um, that uh, a few, several days ago, uh, uh, a, a heritage pub um, known as the Corkman, um, in um, that's located in Carlton near um, near the Melbourne's um, Law Building was um, demolished, <coughs> which is quite unfortunate. It was illegally demolished um, by um, by the developers who owned um, the property. Um, basically, what had happened was um, there was um, a mysterious fire had occurred because um, the pub was still operating. Um, and um, and then it was demolished um, a, a, a short week later after that fire. Um, since then, um, there's been a lot of community outrage about it because you know it, it's it was it's a heritage building. Um, it's also a pub that was um, known for quite a um, that had quite a lot of significance for a lot of people, especially myself who I frequented there quite often. Um, but actually, in terms of like positive developments since then, um, the CFMEU have um, have called on a green ban for the um, onto the site, essentially making it so that no um, the developers can't use it um, for any um, private use, um, and that that, um, that the site will be protected. Um, okay, and in terms of, um, I guess we can go move on to. In terms of other news, such as uh, <coughs> Green Left Weekly Radio, um, there's this is an article from um, the latest Green Left Weekly about Shell's Nigeria ecocide is creating a refugee crisis. Um, in this article, opens up with say, um, saying the fact that you know 60 million um, people are on the run worldwide. Um, most from countries in the Global South. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, says one-third of the refugee of refugees originate from Africa. Um, then potentially talks about um, the sort of um, different sort of wars, human rights violations, political instability, um, discrimination, poverty, and the consequences of climate change and natural disasters are often named as causes for fight. 
but there is also ecocide, destruction of livelihoods through the ruthless exploitation of raw materials and the subsidy politics, subsidising politics of the industrialised countries in the West. The ecosystems in many African re- regions are being systematically destroyed to maximise profits and secure and expand the West's property. The peaceful use of ecosystems by the people who live in these areas have almost become impossible. Life has um, become unbearable in most resource reaches and resource rich regions in Africa so that many people leave their homes desperately. Um, of course, um, this article focuses on um, the case of Nigeria um, with um, Nigeria is like one of the more popular one of the most populated countries has over 170 million people and is the, considered the most populated country in Africa. And But also um, it has, in terms of going with the themes of what I've been talking about, it has the largest African oil reservoir at 2.5 million barrels a day. The country is the biggest oil exporter in Africa and the sixth biggest of the world. The country's economy is extremely dependent on the black gold that provides 90% of its public revenue. Despite the wealth, nearly two-thirds of the population um, live in absolute um, poverty. A small, corrupt elite plunders the state treasury. And then the article goes on to talk about um, Shell, Petroleum Development Company, is um, um, and its responsibility for the oil extraction that occurs in Nigeria. The, um, the actual extracting activities are, however, conducted, it says here, um, by several oil companies, such as Royal Dutch Shell, um, Exxon Mobil, Chevron Texas, and NI slash AG IP. During the past 50 years, nearly 7,000 oil accidents have occurred in the Delta. The several billion um, litres of spilled oil have transformed the re- former natural paradise into hell on earth. The area is Africa's third largest water reserve. As well, its soil as well as its water is extremely contaminated, with the soil being damaged up to five metres deep. Rusty and outdated pipelines run undetected and above ground across villages. Tank reservoirs are responsible for half of the damage followed by access sabotage and oil extraction activities. Closed down drilling rigs and illegal diversion of oil are further causes of the oil pollution. The groundwater is heavily contaminated. Heavy and, um, and in 2011, the World Health Organization found extremely high concentration of hydrocarbon. It was more than 900 times higher than international standards. Um, I guess, in t- course, basically, it, the article goes on to sort of suggest that you know, oil companies who are um, who are extracting you know oil from Nigeria, you know, participate and um, disregard all kind of Nigerian environmental protection laws and get away with it almost with impunity. Um, to pay um, to pay a ridiculously small penalty fee is more profitable than following the law. Um, there's been critics who accuse these company um, the practices of these um, of these companies of as, of racism, and demand they follow the same operative standards as in their respective countries of origin in the West. Um, of course, in terms of um, the the political elites who reside in Nigeria, they do not act against um, the um, against the interest of the oil. Ma- uh, multinationals as they benefit hugely from them. Uh, of course, historically, at the end of um, the 1980s, the government brutally attacked peaceful protests against multinationals and the military regimes. The organised people led the protests, guided by author and human rights a- activist um, Sarawa. Uh, and of course, um, in, to suppress um, the emerging protests, Shell Nigeria asked the military for help. A massacre followed, followed with, um, which followed along with um, large-scale jailings without charges and a mass exodus from the Delta. So, uh, 
uh, was arrested and put into in solidarity confinement. Together with eight others, Sarah was ex-sentenced to death and executed in 1995 despite international protests. Uh, more than 20 years after the execution, there has been little improvement in the Nigeria de Delta despite the return of democracy. The dev devastation of the environment continues unimpended. Um, of course, um, factually, the Nigeria's poorest of the poor live in the Delta region. Child morality is at 20%. Um, soils, rivers uh, and waters are highly contaminated. Um, to such a high degree that agriculture and fishing, the form and livelihood base of the people, are almost impossible. The consequences are disastrous: high unemployment rates, um, high unemployment rates, and hopelessness, especially among youth. Max exodus, extremely high crime rates, and forced prostitution. There's no end in um, sight to the ecological. Have in the studio me, Jacob, and Lali. I'll oh, talk about um, Sir Walton actually, and um, the the council elections that are coming up this Saturday um, and for people who ha are thinking about voting it's open from 8 to 6 I think uh, on Saturday evening or if you want to go pre-polling it's already open now oh to, though for clarity it's if you live in the city if you live in um, the city of Moreland no 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 it's, it's across the state I'm just struggle with Sue in a minute yep oh well most but um, just to clarify most of the council elections are by postal um, there's only two. Um, there's only two electorates: the city of Yarra and the city of Moreland, where you actually vote physically. Vote yeah. physically. So yeah. yeah so well, you still have to vote anyway. There's yeah. some people who are going to vote. Um, uh, the, uh, that's right. Only two councils vote physically, like the federal and state elections. They've changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> there's no fun voting anymore. You can't go and vote at the booth like you know federal and state elections. Mm. Anyway, um, so. You might have heard to Bolton's um, uh, campaign that's running in Moreland, and of course Green Left Weekly is is part of the campaign. We we are supporting well, we're not, we the Green Left Weekly is supporting. So, so on this radio, we're just announcing for people. So if you haven't uh, voted in Moreland City Council, that's someone to think about. And there's a lot of racist backlash as well against Sue because she organised the anti-racist campaign earlier on. No. Yeah, I think an important part of um, that article is um, is sort of the kind of headline kind of quote that um, in a kind of interview, um, there's a three short videos of um, on Sue Bolton's campaign, and in this interview, she kind of outlines um, why she thinks um, councils should be more about collecting um, more than just collecting rates and rubbish, <laughs> yes. and um, so councils funny. can actually play a role in taking a stand on major political issues, um, one of those being racism um, and even refugees, um, climate, um, climate change. Um, you know, it's, it's not, councils aren't, um, based, the basic kind of theme of the article as it is in the latest Green Left Weekly is that, you know, councils can play a lot, much larger political role than what, you know, people presume um, they, they do. Because, yeah, to most people. Yeah, the interesting part is, you know, we don't talk about councils, political entities. There are three levels of government, and council obviously deals with local stuff, although the vulnerability with councils is that it can be sacked by the state government whenever. Um, so councils have to be careful, like Geelong has been sacked, and um, yeah, the elections are happening there um, next year sometime. But it's, it's something that, that people don't think about that much, except when it comes to parking or lane issues or, you know, all the local day-to-day -day stuff. 
um, and not the pol broader political issues. For example, the East-West link was stopped by three councils getting together. So it was good that um, councils actually taking a stand on bigger and broader issues, and that's what Sue was talking about that article. Now, moving on to the next article, there's an article on um, El Salvador um, where, you know, the World Bank uh, Tribunal has bucked tradition and ruled against corporate power on the 14th of August, uh, 14th of October, sorry. The, the tribunal rejected the Canadian-Australian gold mining giant uh, Ocean Gold's claim that El Salvador interfered with its profits when the government pulled the plug on a proposal, proposal um, gold mine. The seven-year multi-million dollar largely secretive court battle had pitted mining affected Salvadoran communities supported by international human rights groups against the deep pockets of the ocean gold. The battle took place in an international tri trade tribunal that's been criticized as a kangaroo court in favor of corporate power. However, the court ultimately awarded El Salvador's government 8 million US dollars to cover legal fees and costs. The conflict sparking the 301 million dollar lawsuit dates back to 2007. El Salvador took a stand for national sovereignty and clean water by denying Oceana Gold, then Pacific Rim, a new per permit to extract um, gold in Central American countries. The government raised concerns over the failure of the company's El Dorado gold mine to live up to national standards regulating the industry. So it's about water and water supply to people and, and, the, and the competition that goes on between large companies and the claimed water in all these especially developing nations. So the lawsuit has um, resulted in favor of El Salvador to a certain extent. And um, I guess it's an example that can be followed around the world, um, which is really, really important. Like Nestle is claiming that you know, water sh should not be free. People yeah. should not water. Um, water is not a right. It's a commodity. So you, you have to use it and um, also think of it as a commodity. You don't have a right to drink water or mm -hmm. drinking water. So it's, 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 a, it's the way mm -hmm. to try to commodify water, which yeah. is really important. Well, I think it's, uh, it's, in, um, it's sort of like trying to take care, um, take, um, it, um, exploit kind of like uh, a feature of nature because um, in nature m the majority of water is actually not drinkable. Um, and Tasmania water is not drinkable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and uh, because um, a lot of water requires, you know, drinking water requires purification, and um, you know they need to build they need to build dams, and eventually Nestle are trying to exploit that to, to you know, commodify it. And but it is kind of disturbing to think that um, they'll try to um, that they it's big, it, um, it's developing in a way that. Um, multinational corporations are trying to make such an essential new need um, for humanity a commodity. Yeah, like in El Salvador, as I was saying before, with this Oceana Gold um, mining company, um, the water quality in a major, is a major problem in El Salvador already, uh, where about 90% of surface water resources are considered unsafe to drink by international standards. Metal mining has been a big offender in fermenting the contamination crisis. By allowing transitional companies, transnational companies to blackmail governments um, or bribing governments to try to force them to adopt policies that favor corporations, investor state arbitration undermines democracy in, in El Salvador and around the world. 
Um, this was a statement made by Marcos Orellana of the Center for International Environment Law. So in, though the law has not been passed, the government has con continued to uphold a ban on new mining projects. Meanwhile, local water defenders have fought for years, and, and of course the traditional people are very much involved in this, um, in, in this battle of trying to, to keep their drinking, the precious uh, need for human beings, a fundamental right really, unlike what the national aid bosses say. So corporate globalization and free trade creates the conditions for corporations to do business with impunity around the globe. So it's interesting that they have actually quietly, it's not known around the world, and, and you don't see it very often, but that's a great victory for the people in El Salvador. Um, do you want to do another one, like this Hurricane Matthew um, thing, I want or you want to do something else? Actually, there's a, uh, one sort of thing I want to talk about, um, which we talk about every week, and probably every every or every two weeks, is um, the U.S. elections. Oh, God, do you have to? Um, <laughs> there's actually mo there's another article about the U.S. elections um, in the latest Green Left Weekly. It's an article abridged from um, the U.S. socialist worker. Um, Basically, the, art, the article um, is with the headline, A Presidential Race to the Bottom with a Misogynist and a Corporate Puppet. Um, many people have probably heard about sort of the comments um, that Donald Trump made, well, has, was allegedly heard um, over, the, over the mic um, in sort of leaked kind of footage. <laughs> um, basically, he um, glorifying, basically Donald Trump glorifying sexual assault. And then uh, his defence was basically that it was locker room talk. Wow, yeah, that was disgusting. Yeah. And I, I, th I think one of the, the things I saw was really, really um, to the point was, um, I don't know if you've heard of the comedian called Trevor Noah. He's a South African guy who's absolutely fantastic. He's doing a, pro a program on, on American TV at the moment. He was talking about it. He said, this is not locker room banter. This is sexual assault. This is a crime. You know, this you're talking about crime. It, it's it's so blatantly um, an issue that is in the criminal justice area, and yet this guy's boasting about it and and making excuses about it. Mm. But yesterday there was a third debate, not the final one. There's another mm. church appearance. Both of them are going to do, I think, later on today or tomorrow. Yeah. Um. And Donald Trump has has declared he's not going to. If he loses, he's not going to respect the uh, the result of the elections because he claims that elections are rigged. So there's an enormous uh, scramble by the Republicans to try and save face. And you know, the first thing they expect people to do is respect the um, will of the people at the ballot box. Mm. Is one of the the major planks of this so-called democracy. And he has offended more Republicans now by making that statement. Mm. So it, it's just a, a clamor. It's just a total mess. It's just like a dog's breakfast in the USA. Yeah. In terms of, like, um, one of the kind of analysis that this article kind of suggests is that, you know, Donald Trump, he's basically a misogynist, a racist, an Islamophobe. Mm. Oh, okay. um, and um, but he, but there's also a complicated kind of contradiction in when he's, compete, he's competing against Hillary Clinton, who is actually essentially... What this article argues, a corporate puppet for the for the one um, and um, Clinton's kind of political strategy um, in response to Trump, because you know Trump is so bad, is essentially um, <laughs> campaign on the basis that she is not Donald Trump, but is yeah. not actually um, because of that. It's actually a sort of sneaky way of not really saying anything um, because she's not campaigning for like you know increased taxes on the rich. It's, it's um, a, a competition between the extreme right. And the right, 
Mm. It's like what's happening between Abbott and, and Malcolm Turnbull and yesterday's parliament as well. Yeah. Where they were fighting about, you know, some state. Well, I, I kind of like um, to some of my um, to some of my friends, I always sort of like to say, oh, yes, the U.S. election is sort of like a competition between Pauline Han- If like imagine Australian politics, if it was a competition between Pauline Hanson, who would represent Trump in that case, yeah. and um, and Malcolm Turnbull, who would be representative of um the right wing of hillary clinton <laughs> so yeah. um but yeah that's that terrible. it's um that's essentially they actually nothing really much has changed in the u.s elections it's still really the same kind of dynamics it just see it's uh, worse um, it's actually it's getting worse in the u.s because at least there was a semblance of democracy you know in in the previous um government so to speak at least it respected the, the, the people's votes at the ballot box, which is always a facade as far as I'm concerned because most elections are rigged around the country. You look at it, mm. the dead people voting, there's you know people who, who vote twice and there's all sorts of rigging that goes on and there's mm. just this gerrymandering. So even within that, um, well-known uh, issues about this current democracy and, and, and voting in the ballot box, this is the, the ultimate way, you know, under the the first thing the president does is respect the people's... Mm. Um, I, on on that claim people. that Donald Trump made that he won't respect, um, I don't think he can do anything, to be honest. Well, you'd be surprised. The right wing, the extreme right wing are gathering weapons and they're starting to yeah. gear up for a Well, war. I think... Um, there's that, there has been those cases of that happening, especially there was this military, there was this takeover of of a park. Um, Where in the US? Yeah, in the US, um, basically by some right wing nationalists, basically took got, um, took up arms and took over this park. Oh. Um, that was it was kind of it came off as very silly, but it is actually, you know, in our in context, it does come off as really silly. Like you know, it's a very silly, ridiculous well, it's, story, it's dangerous. but it's, it's actually quite dangerous. It's very it's dangerous. Um, very dangerous. Um, because he's feeding the extreme right, the racist, even the Ku Klux Klan, all I know feeding them ammunition mm. and support. And, you know, he's got enough money to support any such thing. Anyway, mm. let's move on. So yep. like, I really find him... But I think on the positive note, um, I heard that Donald Trump's support is increasingly decreasing, um, so I don't think that... Well, the fact remains about 40% of Ameri- voting Americans still support him, and that is a not a positive statement. Yep. It's a bit like Pauline Hanson's support is increasing the polls here as well. Mm. You know, it's, it's a question of what fuels the sort of um, backlash from the people, you know, the fact that he's a racist, so black Americans are voting for him. It goes back to the fundamentals of the economy of, of the, the world and the U.S., really. It's a capitalism thing. You know, you deprive people of, of things, you, you don't allow them their rights, they will have to make choices. And you've got a Hillary Clinton who's, his, who's going to establish, you know, nothing new, just business as usual, and you've got Trump who's changed. It's almost like people want any change, not just a positive change, but they're hungry for any change, mm. and that's the sentiment. That's, that's kind of been like the um, same kind of situation for Australian politics yeah, for the past several years. World, yeah. um, for example, people weren't happy with the Labour Party, so they wrote for the Liberals for a change of government, yeah, and they're then angry, they want to change, so they'll do anything. You know, and then probably in this last federal election, uh, people were looking to people like Pauline Hanson and Nick. Xenophone, who got quite a high number of mm, votes. Yeah, um, of course, they were even looking towards, some of them might have been even looking towards progressive, um, more progressive parties like the Greens, um, but of course, it was all really divided across mm. these different third parties. Mm. Talking about uh, the Greens, even the US, in the US, uh, we've got Jill Stein who's standing, and they've not given her any, any airtime. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, only one you can see is um, 
there's uh, democracy, uh, democracy, not democracy, and and uh, Judy Good. Uh, Goodman. You're talking about democracy now. Democracy now. They've got um, YouTube's where they run the three candidates. That's uh, Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Stein, and the inserts Stein in between the debates. It's quite good to see. And the same questions are being put and. Dill Stein is allowed time to answer those questions, which adds to the richness of the debate, um, as opposed to the, the trampling of people and their rights, the way these people go on, talking about personal stuff and nothing to do with what matters for the people. And, you know, like just taking it one step for them quickly is like, it's looking at um, people in, in who, are, who are victims of Katrina, which was that hurricane in, in, in around Florida. People are still living in the streets there. They don't care about the people. So it, people are angry. So that's what you see. And they're, they're rejecting it. In trying to reject the system and, and starving for, for change, they are unfortunately you know, choosing the extreme right. But they have just time to vote for as well if they wanted to, but it's not um, being seen as, as widely as the other two. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, now, the Hurricane Matthew... A, a, a tragedy of the hurricanes is always impossible to quantify. Is the, the human tragedy is awful, and um, now between all the typhoon and recently hit, that hit Taiwan and China with sustained winds, um, and the several super typhoons have killed thousands of people in the Philippines. Recent flooding in Louisiana, the five-year-long drought in California. The reality is that for the first time in four million years, due largely to human burning fossil fuels, our atmosphere has a concentration of 40, 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide. So the climate change is in almost on a permanent basis by, by the, the levels of the PP, PPM, as they call it for short. The political leaders are, are, are you know, really totally off and especially when you look at the white, uh, One Nation uh, senator who talks about this is all a lie, climate change is all a lie. But anyway, people know that climate change is here. You, you look at the, the renewable energy uh, area and the number of people who are putting on solar for their, for their houses is, is growing enormously. People actually have a sense that something is changing, climate is changing, and they're worried, but the government is ignoring it. Shall we have an item before we yep. move on? You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. Or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Okay. All right. So we're back on Green Left um, Radio. Um, we could, yeah. So now the next article we want to talk about is um, about Queen, is centred around Queensland in an article written by Margaret Gleeson. Um, Queensland government to fast-track Adani coal mine. Um, the Queensland government on October 19th, on the October 19th um, once again demonstrated um, a commitment um, to progressing uh, quite a con- controversial 
um, mega coal mine project in um, the Gully Basin, which is known as Ardine. Um, State Development Minister Anthony Linham um, announced that the government had invoked special powers to ensure um, the controversial Carmichael Coal and Rail project starts next year. Um, the combined rail, mine, rail and associated water infrastructure have all been declared critical infrastructure, Liam says. The decision will mean red tape for the proposed $21.7 billion rancher. Um, of course, um, um, due to this designation of the project as critical infrastructure by um, the government, um, it may open the door for, to federal funding for the rail link or water infrastructure. However, in spite of the recent increase in coal prices, Adani is still without major financing for the project and it could still be doomed as a stranded asset. Um, Tim Buckley, um, Director of, um, of Energy Finance Studies at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis in an October 11th article, um, in his, resp- his response to the decision was, writes that um, he said that, you know, the strategic merit remains questionable, the quality of the coal the project would produce is inferior, and the location remote remains an unbankable proposal. However, Ardani um, is, um, is, is a gigantic company used to getting its way. It has already invested $1.4 billion in the project and is reluctant to just walk away and write off that amount. Um, um, you know, coal prices have rallied dramatically this year, but um, Adani wields political clout in both India, its home country, and Australia. It can move governments. That means a downsized version of the project remains a possibility. Um, in terms of, you know, what, what kind of community opposition, it still kind of it remains strong. Um, where with Sunday residents against dumping said the dredging required for Ardani's expansion of the Abbott Point Coal Terminal could do untold environmental harm and the mine itself will fuel global warming and endanger the reef. The Australian Marine um, Conservation Society condemned the government's decision in a statement issued on October the 10th. Um, a, um, sorry. AMC's Great um, Barrier Reef campaign, Imogen Xenophon. Zenophony. Uh, Zenophony. It's a difficult name. Yeah, it's quite a difficult name. Um, the, said the burning of the coal due to be produced from Adani's Carmichael mine will result in 60 million tonnes of carbon dioxide a year for up to 60 years, which will accelerate global warming and increase the temperature. No, it's good. Um, the Greens have also responded, said the decision to um, designate the Adani coal mine railway and water infrastructure as critical infrastructure is reckless and shows how short-sighted the government is. Um, and, of course, um, Green's environmental spokesperson, Senator Larissa Waters, said Queenslanders will be outraged that the Labor government elected to save the reef is signing its death warrant. Um, we know Adani is, will likely pay no tax in Australia and will only generate a fraction of the jobs originally um, promised. Um, the fa- and in the article, we, Margaret Gleeson kind of concludes the fast-tracking of the Adani project is one of the series of coal mining projects the government has given the go-ahead in recent years. These include Stage 3 of the Arkland Mine, operated by New Hope Coal in Darlingowns, the Alpha, mi- Alpha mi- Mine um, proposal for the Galilee Basin by Hancock, GVK, and the reopening of the Glencore Mine at how this addiction to f- uh, fossil fuels can coexist with the state's government target of 50% renewable by 2030 is hard to see. Now, um, I thought we should say something about the war in Yemen, which gets largely forgotten by the West because of focus on Syria and removing Assad. 
um, and this battle between almost like a pseudo Cold War thing between the U.S. and the Russian stuff. Um, it's interesting to note that the the first direct Western involvement in the war in Yemen um, was the U.S. naval forces when they fired cruise missiles on, on, at targets in Yemen on the 12th of October. The Western powers have been an aim arming and bankrolling Saudi Arabia throughout the war. And the, the, the Gulf state allies um, and Saudi Arabia have pursued relentless bombing against Yemen. It seems to it aimed to influence its neighbor's um, political order. The Saudi war are targeted, have targeted hospitals, schools, electricity grids, and civilian infrastructure in Yemen. Uh, it's only possible due to the full military and political support provided to Saudi Arabia by Britain and the U.S. Um, and warplanes are refueled by the U.S., and they carry out strike, airstrikes on a funeral hall in Yemen's capital, Sana'a. At least 140 civilians were killed um, on the 8th of October, and there were about 500 wounded. The Saudi aircraft struck that particular funeral hall because the attendees included high-level officials from the Houthi movement. In, in the Yemeni capital, Sana'a's, th Sana's thousands took to the streets to protest this latest Saudi outrage. However, it's clear the funeral hall attack is only the last, latest in its long string of assaults on hospitals, marketplaces, and anywhere the civilians congregate. On the 11th of October, the National Public Radio discussed how the U.S. has become an indispensable partner for the Saudi government in its offensive against the Yemeni Houthi movement. The war was intended to be a quick and decisive victory over the rebel forces with the Saudis reinstalling the Yemeni proxy called President Abed Mansour Hadi in power. However, the war has ground on, ground on for more, much longer than anticipated, and the Saudis, along with their U.S. and British backers, find themselves stuck in a quagmire of their own making. So this is an enormous human tragedy that's going on in, in Yemen with the support of the U.S. and the British, is I'm sure most people will, I guess, you know, guess. Um, it's, it's dragging on and on, and the mainstream media has largely ignored it. it you get the occasional mention in some of the like ABC, I guess, mentions a few times, but generally they don't focus on the human tragedies going on in this place. The U.S. involvement in the specific funeral hall attack is criminal, but it's only one part of the wider role that the U.S. and Britain have played enabling in enabling the Saudi regime to devastate Yemen. So in Saudi Arabia has also implemented a naval blockade of Yemen since last year. The Saudi forces stopped and searched many um, maritime traffic that's heading towards Yemen ports and turned back shipping. The, blockading, the blocking of seaports has added to the misery of the ordinary Yemenis with millions facing prospect of starvation. Food scarcity has hit the children of Yemen particularly hard. It's apparently that humanitarian catastrophe of, of epic proportion and is unfolding very quickly in this uh, war-ravaged country. The UNICEF has reported on the dire situation. The Yemeni children are paying the heaviest price. Diseases such as cholera have broken out, and this human disaster is looking more and more likely, as, as if it's really not already occurred. 
The U.S. Navy attacked and destroyed radar sites in the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen with cruise missiles. So essentially what you're looking at is the Pentagon and, the, and, and the Britain supporting a human tragedy that's going on and exacerbating the deaths of people. And despite all the forces um, ranked against them, the Yemeni Houthis have pro- proved resilient and the Hadi government, while officially recognized, has only a very thin base of domestic support. Saudi Arabia and its imperialist enablers are hemorrhaging the money and credibility as they become ever more bogged down in the small Gulf nation of Yemen. So it's just awful. The whole of the Middle yeah. East is such a mess. You know, you, you feel depressed looking at the, reading all this stuff. Yeah. And Green Left Weekly has a more detailed report on that. I guess um, before we move on to our interview, um, we'll go on um, because we're going to be playing um, a long kind of interview with Jack Monday later no, on. No, no, no. What, what's going to happen is because of the 40 year celebration, yep. 3CR is playing historical audios. And the one we're going to play today at o'clock involves the green band that Jack Monday implemented in, I think it was the 60s or 70s actually. And it's to protect um, the green space and um, buildings in New South Wales. Yep. So it's a half an hour interview. We'll start it just before 8 o'clock. So yep. if you are um, driving or if you are at home in the kitchen having breakfast, there'll be a good um, interview that was conducted a couple mm. of decades ago. Yep. Um, just to quickly go through um, the actress calendar, which you we do usually that? do at 8 a.m. So what's ha- um, in terms of what's happening, there's going to be um, a walk together in Melbourne um, happening at 11 a.m., um, on the State Library this Saturday. Um, we're actually going to be doing an interview shortly with one of the organisers um, for that event, um, so stay tuned. Um, also happening on that Saturday will be um, a rally uh, for Aboriginal rights against sort of the inhumane treatment of Aboriginal children in prisons. Um, that is going to be happening at 1pm at um, the State Library. Um, on the November the 5th... Um, There'll be uh, there'll well, on November the fifth, Saturday um, um, at one p.m. or twelve p.m. Not completely sure. There's a, new, a refugee rights rally or um, at the state uh, at the state library. Um, um, calling on you know no to boat turnbacks, um, no to mandatory detention, and it's organised by Refugee Action Collective. On Saturday, um, the 5th of November, also happening that day, will be World Caban Day, um, solidarity <coughs> with the Rojava Revolution. That is going to be happening after the... Uh, it will be, be an opportunity to stand in solidarity with the Kurdish people and their struggle against ISIS in, um, in Kobani. Um, that will be happening at 3pm at the State Library right after the Refugee Rights Rally. Um, there will be, in terms of other events, so quickly... Later on during the week, um, there'll be. Okay, there'll be. Um, there'll be a public meeting when um, on Friday, October the twenty eighth, next Friday, um, when Australians said no to the war. That is a free event. That'll be at the Brunswick Library, at the corner of Sydney Road and Orson Street in Brunswick. Um, there'll be a book li- um, launch at, on the Thursday, October the 27th, um, the, the, the Conscription Conflict and the Great War, edited by Robert Archer, and they'll be at 6pm at the Shrades Hall Council Meeting Room, um, 154 Victoria Street, um, Carlton South. 
Um, and um, there will be a run from um, October the 25th to Sunday the November the 26th of a new um, theatre play called 1916, which celebrates their 100th anniversary of the successful no case against conscription in the First World War in Australia, specifically written for, um, for the October 28th, 2016 Cemetery of the First Plebiscite on conscription and sponsored by the Brunswick and Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign, Tuesday to Saturday, 8pm, Sunday. Um, tickets cost $30 and you can book them, um, you can book tickets at let me just get the link for this. Um, and you can book tickets at the metanoafeater.com. At metanoafeater.com. Okay. Okay. Good morning, um, Sam. Good morning. And welcome to 3CI. And thank you for offering to talk to us today. Um, uh, most well. You're yeah. from <laughs> the movement called Walk Together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, tell us a bit more because it's not a very well-known group. I think it's a fairly new one, is it? Uh, it's actually... So Walk Together is an event um, that's been happening for a few years now um, mm-hmm. and it's organised by uh, a group called Welcome to Australia. All right, OK. Um, yeah, so Welcome to Australia um, was founded a number of years ago um, essentially to engage ordinary Australians with um, a task or to increase the culture of welcome um, in our country. So given the sort of the politics of fear and division and all those sorts of things that have been going around for the last couple of years, um, yeah, Welcome to Australia kind of acts to bring positive media to um, the stories of refugees and asylum seekers, people of all different backgrounds um, in our community, mm-hmm. and to sort of value that. So, yeah, the Walk Together event um, is sort of one way um, to sort of declare... Um, the Australia that we want to be, which is, you know, known for generosity and compassion and diversity. So, mm. yeah. Is it is it a group of uh, church groups that are building it, or is it just a bunch of independents? Um, no, it's a bunch of independents. So it um, transcends across all different faith groups. Um, and so we've got representatives from many different, um, you know, religious and non-religious groups that are involved. Um, so people, um, media ambassadors as well from different TV shows and radio hosts. So, yeah, it's across um, yeah, all different aspects of our communities in Australia. Mm. So what's actually um, going to happen? Are you going to gather at the State Library or Fed Square? Um, so we're actually gathering at Parliament Steps to begin with. <laughs> Neither of so, these. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's right. Um, so we'll be at Parliament Steps at 11 o'clock. Um, and there'll be a welcome to country there from one of the Wurundjeri elders. And then from there, we'll um, begin the walk, and that will go down Burke Street and then up Swanson Street, and we'll finish at the State Library um, steps. And so there we'll have a couple of speakers, including um, uh, we've got Richard Di Natale, and we've also got Missy Higgins who will be playing as well. And there's, there'll be a couple other cultural performances too. Um so, yeah, that's the event that's happening in Melbourne. Um, it's actually happening in about 30 different cities around Australia. And it's actually just started in the U.S. for the first time um, this year as well. So it's quite an expanding movement, which is exciting. Starting in the U.S. at a time like this. Maybe it's crucially nice happening there. <laughs> it's a perfect time for it, right? <laughs> Sounds like a very timely thing, but how successful they're going to be is going to be interesting because of the conflict situations being set up by the elections as you were talking before. 
Yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's just so much talk of division and fear and all that um, in media across all around the world these days. And so it's, it's important that, you know, events that bring people together and share and celebrate, sorry, diversity um, exist so that people don't feel as marginalised and know that there are people out there that are welcoming and want to give people a sense of belonging despite their background. So. Are you involved with the refugee movement at all? Um, I've been involved here and there, so with like a couple of different material aid programs. So um, Welcome to Australia has some um, material aid programs in some other states. Mm-hmm. It's not as um, um, largely established in Victoria. It's still sort of, I mean, in Melbourne, you know, we've got a lot of other organisations that have those programs that exist already. Um, but there's, yeah, when I lived in Adelaide, which was where Australia actually started, there are a couple of different programs. So um, ones where we have uh, welcoming families, so setting up um, people um, with new arrivals and just helping them to settle in, um, helping them with, yeah, material aid, so um, organising basics like beds and bridges and all that sort of stuff for people that are... Um, yeah, new to the country. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So in between the marches on an annual basis, that's the sort of stuff you do, yeah? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're a group of individuals who are really doing it um, on a voluntary basis. You don't have full-time staff organizing this so this event. Um, yeah, I personally am volunteering, um, and so are the others that are organizing the walk on Saturday. Um, Welcome to Australia has just started... Um, hiring a couple of people um, as full-time um, positions, uh, but it's still like just a couple of people are in different states. Um, so I think they've got a couple of projects that they're starting to invest a lot more time into, um, and so that should be coming up in the next few months or so. I think there'll be some more announcements about that in the future. Okay, so the, the march is this Saturday? Yes, that's right. Saturday at 11 a.m. at Parliament Steps. Parliament steps. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Sam, for being available. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hopefully people will turn up and and make this a a good um, statement to our political leaders who are not so welcoming. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay, thanks, Sam. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. So we'll go. Um, we're going to be playing an interview shortly um, by um, by Jack Mundy, um, uh, which is archival. Um, fo- uh, <coughs> sorry, um, archival Archive footage. Yes. <laughs> not archival footage. More like a, a archival recording. <laughs> yeah. In um, to, to use correct um, um, terminology. Um, but guess we'll go with just one quick news story. Um, um, many people probably know we've Greenleft um, Radio has been reporting on this. Um, the CUB55 dispute um, is still happening. Um, it, and when this article was written, um, it has been um, 125 days since uh, the Carlton United Breweries and Carlton United Breweries plant in Abbotswood sacked 55 electricians and fitters who have a combined history of 900. Six years of service at CUB and a protest was begun at the um, brewery gates. Um, since then, what has been developing since then, um, the ownership uh, and the labour contractor of CUB has changed. Um, thousands of, but in response, thousands of Australians have joined, you know, a boycott of CUB products. Um, 
What um, the most recent development is the CUB dispute has led to a Senate inquiry into corporate um, avoidance of the Fair Work Act as Australian companies are increasingly using labour hire and outsourcing to illegally cut workers' pay and conditions. Um, the Senate inquiry, which was endorsed by Parliament unopposed, will also investigate the use of artificially small and unrepresentative voting cohorts to approve agreements. Um, the, de- the enterprise agreement that led to the CUB dispute was voted on by just three casual workers in Perth two years ago. Um, the Electronic um, Trades Union said there will be no doubt hundreds of examples in addition to CUB, and we look forward to them all being uncovered and getting our employment laws fixed once and for all. Um, community and union supporters joined the SAC um, workers for a lunchtime protest outside CUB headquarters in Southbank on October the 13th. Um, the week's rally was a chance to send the message to AB, NB, CUB's new owners to resolve the dispute and reinstate the SAC workers on their previous wages and conditions. Um, and ETU organiser Steve Diston um, said, echoed the strength of the campaign and drew loud applause by asserting um, that quote, that the brewery will crumble before our resolve does, you know, basically saying that, you know, the, the workers aren't going to stop um, until, until those works are, are reinstated or if CUB goes um, down under. The important thing is that we continue to support these workers because, as they say, you touch one, you touch all. Um, the famous um, lines of um, Cummins, one of the uh, late organizers in the um, CFMEU. Um, The thing is, if we allow this to happen to those 55-odd workers, um, it becomes a a victory for the employers, and we have to be supporting them. And let's hope these new employers are more at least open to negotiating, um, if nothing else, and then sort this out through the union. In the meantime, a heritage building, as you said, was was knocked down, the, the pub, and the CFMU has put a green ban on that one. Mm. They wouldn't touch it because asbestos yeah. is, uh, I don't know if you said that, but there was asbestos, asbestos yeah. um, exposed. I guess just one last quick thing. Because of this new ownership, there's actually some new beers to boycott. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, um, so the new um, the new beers to avoid since the NBEV takeover include um, Beck's, Budweiser, Corona, Stella and Ho Garden. Uh, are being added to this list of beers to boycott. Fortunately, I did like drinking one of those. So. <laughs> Bad uh, luck. <laughs> you can't. Yep. But anyway, we better get on to the, the interview. Um, so the interview goes for 30 minutes, and the next program, uh, Beyond Zero Emissions... We'll follow shortly after. We'll follow straight after because it's a very tight 30-minute interview. So let's go and we shall see. We shall meet again next week on Green Left Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And here we go. Three CRs turn 40. And from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. Jack, what events led you to become involved in unionism and politics in Sydney in the 60s? Oh, in the 50s, actually. Uh, That's how old I am. Um, 
I came down from far north Queensland to play rugby league, which is a non-Australian rules football code. And and uh, in the early 50s for Parramatta, I became in, involved in unionism because uh, I uh, went into the building industry. It was a very rough industry. The union leadership was uh, worked in tandem with the... Um, master builders, and um, I became involved that way. Right, so what were conditions like for a BL when you first came to Sydney? Pretty horrendous. I mean, I started working in the building industry in the late 50s, about 57, and um, in, and we formed a group called the Rank and File Committee, which had the aim of um, winning control for the rank and file against a very corrupt union and um, in one year I had 17 jobs. I got soon, no sooner would you commence on a job than you, they'd pick your head out and they'd sack you. And um, so it was very traumatic years. And, and a, a strange aspect to the building industry because when I commenced in the industry, the highest building in Sydney was 150 feet. In fact, there was a limit of 150 feet. So a 13-storey building was the biggest building in Sydney. And then they lifted the height limit and the sky became the limit. And uh, ironically, it was that that brought more and more workers together in the city and uh, the rank and file gathered strength. We knocked over the very corrupt leadership and when we won power, we set about a number of things that were different to most other unions. We set about the idea that all union officials should get paid the same as the workers on the job. We fought for the right of women to work in what was then an all-male enclave. We had migrants put on the um, books as uh, officials and at all delegate conferences and mass meetings we had six or eight of the main uh, nationalities address their members and so we sort of broadened out the whole approach and we then in the 60s fought to quote civilise the industry because as the buildings went up in one year there were 14 dogmen killed in the city because of the narrow streets and wind channels wind tunnels and so we fought for a more dignity for building workers and to, quote, civilise the industry. And I think that won the confidence of the workers. The workers could see that we weren't just in it for ourselves. And another very controversial decision we made was uh, that all union officials should have a limited tenure of office, two terms, uh, and after two terms they should relinquish office uh, from full-time work for one term at least, before being eligible for re-election. In hindsight, I think this was a bit too advanced because it alienated not only right-wing union officials but left-wing union officials. And whereas the rank and file thought it was a great idea in the sense that it proved that the union leadership was concerned about the workers and not using union officialdom as a stepping stone to a job in Parliament or if you like to defect a job for the employers or being appointed to the industrial courts, etc. So I think it was those sort of things that made 
the builders' labour is a different sort of union. The New South Wales BLF were at the forefront of social change during this time, and there were there were so many actions that you you took part in, and the rank and file workers took part in with community residents. Um, but before getting into that, I was just wondering, when did you start this sabotage of um, industrial sites? I was really interested to see how that came about with knocking the walls down and things like that. I don't know whether the word sabotage is, is appropriate. What we put forward was that we had made a democratic decision to go on strike. It was about civilising industry and lifting up the workers' wages. And the employers, because of the scattered nature of the building industry, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of jobs, uh, in the main all the city jobs and the metropolitan areas of Wollongong and Newcastle were unionised, but if you get out right out in the wide suburbs, well, they weren't all. And so what the employers tended to do was to try and use non-union labour to break down the conditions. And we said we were on strike, and therefore we'd made a democratic decision to go on strike, and they were deliberately trying to usurp that by using scab labour. And what we said, we'd occupy the site, and if any damage occurred to the property of the employer, it rested with the owners of the building that was using scab labour. So we were defending the democratic right. The employers, of course, and the Askin government, a very right-wing Tory government in New South Wales, very pro-development, used it as saying, well, here's anarchy gone mad, the union's running over things there. But we were saying we're endorsing and supporting the rank-and-file decision that this industry is closed and some damage occurred to sites. And, of course, then the tabloid newspaper would take it up and with headline news about Sydney being trampled underfoot by the builders' labourers, that sort of terrible exaggeration. And uh, I think it played a part in, in alienating a lot of people against us at that stage. That's why it's very interesting later on. I mean, uh, we were vilified for the action then. But later on, when we, after the Green Band period, well, we were well and truly vindicated because that civilising the union and giving the workers dignity allowed us then to embark on wider issues of social and ecological concern. So had we not cleansed the union and civilised the industry, we would never have been able to get the workers to take a more advanced action on ecology and on the environment. Just on that, I was wondering, was there a conflict of interest in workers' jobs and holding up all that development in Sydney at that time? I think, the, well, of course, at that stage, the unemployment position was not as bad as it is today, but there's always a conflict on the question of jobs and the environment. And in the main, the forces of reaction have been able to put forward a phony scenario saying you've got to choose, quote, jobs or the environment. Whereas, of course, we said we want both. We want jobs and the environment. We want socially useful jobs. Why should we build more and more high-rise buildings when there was something like 10 million square feet of unleaded office space. 
and yet you had 55,000 people waiting on the housing emissions list for housing emission homes. So we argued aggressively again that money should be diverted from useless high-rise office buildings, many of it standing empty for years, and moved over into areas of socially useful production of buildings that could house people. And a couple of examples, for example, in Woolloomooloo, which is looked upon as the oldest suburb in Australia, just down from the central business district in Sydney, they were going to extend the high-rise right down there and build millions of dollars of high-rise development. And we put a ban on that, and we argued that it should be for people to live in, that working-class people should not be forced 30, 40 miles out of Sydney. And Woolloomooloo is now is a classic example of what we did because they're right in the heart of Sydney. You've got low-income people being able to have affordable, to use that word, housing, whereas uh, the old, the old working-class areas like Paddington and Glebe and Balmain have been well and truly gentrified. And where they were the working-class areas, it's now certainly middle-upper class and moved into those areas. So I think Woolloomooloo was an example of the argument that we were concerned to link social issues what we're doing with our own labour. Whereas before there was a tendency to say, well, all the workers should be concerned about was the hip pocket, was wages, wages and conditions. And we argued that in a modern society, uh, wider issues, quality of life issues, uh, should become a part of the union's concern. What was the view of the union on slum clearance um, of working class homes to build commission flats for public housing? Well, it, it's uh, for those that know Sydney, it's almost uh, unbelievable now to think that in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Paddington, which is built on the hills, the undulating area, which is now a working class area, was going to be all flattened and, uh, and high-rise development put in. The same thing was going to happen with the rocks. So I think that the movement of the time brought together uh, people who felt that they had some rights. Like uh, I think that the union becoming involved in social issues meant that people who were fighting against leaving the rocks or leaving Woolloomooloo had an ally. And so you had a strange coming together of working class um, homeowners or renters together with a union who, who were prepared to fight for them. And at the same time, you had environmental issues like uh, Kelly's Bush, which is in really a, a really flash suburb of, of Sydney, Hunters Hill, where women went down in front of a bulldozer to save the last remnant of rainforest on the Parramatta River. And as a very last resort, they came to us on the basis they heard that the builders' labourers were saying we should be concerned about things wider than economics. And it's now history. We came together and the middle-upper-class women, together with the rough-you and builders' labourers, saved Kelly's Bush. And I think this had a tremendous appeal to people across the whole spectrum because it was a genuine coming together of working-class and middle-class in action about the environment. And also, before that time, 
there was a tendency to look upon the environment as being nature conservation, being forests, rivers, lakes, barrier reef, etc. And what was shot home in the Greenbound movement was that we are, Australia, one of the most urbanised countries on earth. If you take Geelong and Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong and Newcastle, the Gold Coast and Brisbane, you've got 70% of Australians living in three great urban areas. So the built environment became a very important aspect. And uh, as the um, prominent biologist Paul Ehrlich said when he came, he couldn't believe that you could have an alliance of unions and environmentalists because it was so alien to think that he had experienced the United States where where big businesses set one against the other and said you're natural allies and natural enemies. He had them together and he explained it as he said it was the birth of urban environmentalism as against nature conservation. So I think they're the sort of trailblazing things that the the Green Band movement did. And the, and the reason it did, I think we've traced it through, that you had a union that were just all working, all very, most of, most of us hadn't even had a formal education. And yet, because of the circumstance of a corrupt union before us, we were able to reach out and, and, and bridge that link that made the Green Band movement possible. It was a support we had. Like, on the one hand, we had many uh, people from the uh, employer, naturally, the, the employers were against us. Askin government was very hostile. Uh, we also had um, some union of the right-wing union officials. They were saying things like, quote, the un- builders' labourers are going too far. Shouldn't be saving heritage buildings. You know, like They were saying all these things. Well, we responded by saying that anything that impinges upon the workers' rights they've got the right to do it about. It's not only wages and conditions. And I think they were the things that, that that attracted a lot of people, some of whom, for example, were Liberal voters. On the one hand, we had right-wing union officials uh, criticising us for doing these things. On the other hand, we had small L Liberal people in the Democrats, or the, the, in those days there wasn't a Democrat party, there was a, a Gordon Barton's Australia Party, those people coming on side and saying, look, normally we're against unions, but we find that you know, saving fig trees in the botanical gardens, saving heritage buildings, saving workers' homes, well, we find ourselves on side with the union. So that was the sort of dichotomy we had that split the normal left-right division. But just finally, just quickly, I wanted to ask, um, there was other social movements involved and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink ban that was... Well, the, I remember the blue ban on... The Macquarie on University pink ban. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue ban down on Lake Pedder. <laughs> well, yeah, well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War apartheid, support for our own, own blacks. For example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites. We A tent embassy was set up in Canberra with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders and the builders' labourers, 
But <clears throat> the other one happened to put in in uh, in the Macquarie University was that Je- Jeremy Fisher was kicked out of the Rod- Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' labourers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated, and they won the case. At the same time, Women's Social Liberation, Anne Kerthoys and Elizabeth Jacker, were fighting for a Women's Social Liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on women's social liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and, and the Jean Kerfoy. So, yeah, we, we, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short, to traverse the whole lot. But, I mean, I think the important thing, of course it was an exciting time. It was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labor Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. The book Green Band's Red Union has brought together a whole new generation of people to understand um, what happened or hear more about what happened with the New South Wales BLF than, that perhaps didn't know um, and weren't around at the time. In that, Norm Gallagher was report, was um, quoted as saying some pretty harsh words about yourself and, and the BLF and particularly around that whole um, notion of alliances with perhaps what might not have been seen as traditionally working class kind of uh, allies. Did you ever have any doubts about the direction you were heading in during that time? Well, I think when you're involved in in so many struggles, of course you've got doubts, not about the overall political scenario because you're involved in so many fights. Uh, You haven't got time to work all those out, but the learning process that we received through the broad range of people and the struggles we were in, whether it's anti-apartheid, Vietnam, whether it's the Green Movement, convinced us that grassroots action and people's action was was the most important thing. And um, so, no, there wasn't any doubting. We didn't have time anyway to worry so much about that. If we If we talk... I don't think we should have too much time talking about, no. quote, Gallagher Mundy mm. thing, because it is true for younger people. They should know that Gallagher and, my, and Mundy fought many fights together. And it was only in the latter stage when uh, he or his philosophy or the particular line of Marxism-Leninism took a stand that we were wrong and petty bourgeois and darling of the trendies, quote, 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 that that uh, we come apart. So I think for anyone having a historical look at the builders' labourers, for much of the time, uh, Mundy and Gallagher and the unions, New South Wales and Victoria, fought together. 
Yep. We've seen over the last 30 years, we've seen a huge change in Australia and, and also in what's happened with unions in terms of amalgamations and the accord period and a long period of the ALP in government. What are your impressions of what that's meant for unions? Well, I think very few of us who, in 1979-80, when Reagan and Thatcherism came a reality, very few of us thought that in 20 years' time, the turn of the century, it would not only still be viable, but would have engulfed both Labor and Liberal, Democrat and Republic, Labor and Conservative in England, all of English-speaking countries in particular, and in most of the industrialised countries, economic fundamentalism, uh, privatisation, deregulation, downsizing, became the order of the day. Very few of us believed they would last for so long. And I think that both the Hawke and Keating governments have got a lot to answer for because during that whole period, there was a virtual absence of any rank-and-file activity. The All decisions were made at a top level, language like consensus, blind adherence to the accord, uh, forced amalgamations. And I'm not saying there wasn't a need for some amalgamations because 350 or 400 unions, I think, are too many. But uh, certainly not forced amalgamations. And so I think that the union rank and file lost out badly with Kelty, Hawke and Keating doing their dealing willing at a top level. So the, the union movement and the left in particular uh, lost its way during that period and became very demoralised um, and, and, and really not very relevant. And it still isn't very relevant. Uh, though I, I sense now that there is a, a feeling that there's got to be more grassroots activity, there's got to be more rank and file activity. And I would say, not that I travel that much interstate now, but going a little bit around the states, Victoria is the best. I mean, that's how probably bad the other states are. <laughs> but Victoria is the best as regards the possibility of building new alliances. Extending that, the capital now tells workers, in fact, that capital is global and therefore workers have to adjust to that and make sacrifices as a result of that. Do you feel the unions have done enough to adjust to global capital? I think it's a real challenge and I think that the union movement is pretty frightened about that challenge. Though when you look at Maitland, the leader of the miners, has made some move to international uh, togetherness, linking up, I think that they've got to do that, but at the same time they've got to fight on their home base. I don't think it's... like I see in today's age that uh, profitability has risen 28% in last year and uh, and wages have risen 2.8 or something, about 10 times over. And I don't think that we do enough publicity-wise. I don't think that the union movement is sort of aggressive enough. I think that the, the horrible wreath and the manner in which he sort of walks up, walk-up type fighter, I think that we're not... The union movement is not um, left or progressive enough to fight back against that. And, it, and I hesitate to say that because about the last thing you want is that some old union official coming on and saying, <laughs> you know, what's wrong with the... As so, an old union official, Jack, by the way, do you think current union officials have enough awareness of class struggle in a general sense? No, I don't think they do. Um, I don't think they've got enough understanding of the class struggle. 
nor do I think they've got enough understanding of the need to build broader alliances, and they're not contradictory. I mean, certainly, certainly the most interesting part of my life was a very working class union building alliances with middle class about environmental and social, ecological issues. And I think the problems of the planet are so many that the union movement must broaden itself. I think that the union movement, on the one hand, has got to be more militant about wages and conditions, but at the same time, it's got to broaden out its activity to other community concerns, particularly like unemployment, the question of, you know, things like drugs, the, the whole gambit of of problems that confront society, that should be union business as well. Mm. Jack, extending that again to socially useful work, which you're leading toward there in some ways, uh, in Melbourne we've seen City Link being built. We've recently seen the bulldozers and the um, and the chainsaws in Royal Park converting it into a into a Commonwealth Games facility. We've had Albert Park. Now, in each of these cases, the community groups have gone to the unions and said, "We'd like you to support us," but they haven't had that support. How do you feel about that now? Well. I mean, the reason I'm in Melbourne now is at the request of an earth worker, and I think that they're on the right line of trying to build alliances between the green movement and the workers' movement, the union movement. Um, But because of the low level of development, I think it'd be probably wrong for them to to rush. Well, again, I'm being being an advisor. I think it'd be wrong for them to rush into immediacy and take action. I think that they've got to, it's a fledging organisation, I think it's got to build itself up a little bit. Uh, just digressing, I think one of the weaknesses of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales is that we were a mile out in front and in some ways we isolated ourselves a bit. Mm-hmm. Things like limited tenure of office and others didn't help much, I might add, but because but, uh, most junior officials wanted life tenure or a bit better if they could organise it. Mm-hmm. But I mean... Uh, the, the the very fact that I think that we I think that the earthworks should earthworkers should try and build those alliances and maybe at a later stage I mean I think to move into I've only heard about the development at uh, at Royal Royal Park is it mm. yeah right. well it'd be terrific if the union then was advanced enough to do that it would appear to me they're not which you did in fact um, in Sydney eh? but which you did in Sydney of course you saved the park up there but. Well, um, we, we did it many times, but I, I'm saying when you look back, we were also, let's face it, I mean, the, the history of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales, when they couldn't bribe or coerce us, and we were offered millions of dollars to lift those green bands, they then used a part of the union movement mm-hmm. to knock us off. Just 25 years later to finish up with, uh, I'm, I'm sure the unions would now say, look, it was okay then in the 70s when there was plenty of employment, lots of work. These days... Jobs are paramount. We have to get jobs for our workers regardless of what they are. How do you answer that? Well, because there was only one union that did it back then either. I mean, it's not true that there was, you know, relatively full employment. There wasn't full employment. There was relatively full employment. But you still made sacrifices. Those workers were consulted and they made sacrifices at that time. So, I mean, I think you've got to adjust to each period. And that's why I think now you'd have to argue for, quote, shorter working week. I mean, I think it's outrageous that you're working, got enterprise agreements 48 and 60 hours a week while you've got a million unemployed. If we had a 35-hour week, well, then you could employ those million people. So, so we've missed out there somewhere.
And I think the union movement has got to be more creative in what it does and not just reactive to the employers. Obviously, the rank and file and the community were very important in your campaigns and making alliances between the union and the community. And what kind of options do you, and prospects do you think there are in 1999 for those kind of, uh, of alliances to be built? I, th- I think they're very numerous, the potential. They're very, the problems of society uh, are manifest, aren't they? I mean, global warming is there. Uh, it's fashionable at the turn of the century to talk about the new century. Well, now when we look at the, the fact of life, we've got four times as many people as we had in 1900. We've got more people in the world living in poverty now than the entire population 100 years ago. And yet you've got the enormous extremes on the other side, terrible riches, you know, all the things we know about. So, I mean, the, the need for community action linking with union action, the potential is unlimited. And I think unless unions do this, they will wither on the vine. If they just get in the, the plight of what USA unions have been, in fact, now USA unions have improved somewhat from a very low level and they're reaching out. I think that we've got a better history here after all, the progressive unions in this country have always been strong on peace and war, like Vietnam War and, and the Depression, uh, the evictions even in the, in the 20s and 30s. So the progressive section of the union has got a good record of struggle. But of recent times, particularly in that last 20 years, it's slipped down alarmingly. And I think there's got to be a resurgence of militancy and linking, fighting the class struggle, as Kevin said, with taking a class struggle up, exposing just how profitable they companies are, and at the same time reaching out to other organisations who are suffering very much in the in the in the growth of mad globalisation, people who are suffering out there. There's a lot of allies can be built for the union movement.